are bombarded daily with radiation from natural sources. We have learned how to harness that radiation and use it to help us in diagnosis and in treatment. However, what helps us sometimes hurts us, and there are plenty of examples of that in medicine. Advances in medical technology are one big reason we have to stay on our toes. There are plenty of benefits, but there are also plenty of risks. Medical imaging of the powerful radiation kind, here we're thinking about CT scans, is now under scrutiny in many corners. The concerns are that we can't seem to get enough of these images, despite the dangers of accumulated and long-term exposure, despite the costs, despite not always knowing if the tests are truly needed, or whether or not some other imaging procedure might be equally as effective. It seems that many times just because we have the technology, we have to use it. Patients demand that doctors use the latest technology to determine a diagnosis. In a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2007, the authors estimated that there are 62 million CT scans yearly in the United States. However, what if we framed this a little bit differently? Would you like a CT scan of your abdomen that's the equivalent of about 400 chest x-rays? Would patients think differently if we offer them that information when they come in asking for a CT scan or when you offer a CT scan to your patients? Today, we're applying the quality lens to the radiation imaging in this edition of WIHI. Hi, everyone. My name is Frank Federico. I'm Executive Director for Strategic Partners here at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, sitting in for Madge Kaplan. Madge will be back with us at our next program. WIHI is our free bi-weekly online audio cast devoted to quality improvement of the most innovative kind. I'm sure you're eager to hear about how we'll apply this approach to imaging practices. To discuss the issues of radiation exposure from medical imaging, we have on the phone with us today two physicians. One is Dr. James Duncan. Dr. Duncan is the Associate Professor of Radiology and Surgery at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Duncan, welcome. Thank you, Frank, Jesse and Frank. Pleasure to be on your show. And also with us is Dr. Richard Griffey. Dr. Griffey is the Associate Chief of Quality and Safety of Emergency Medicine, also from Washington University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Griffey. Thanks. Happy to be here. And also welcome to all of our participants on the line. Let's get started with Dr. Duncan. We'll start with you asking, help us understand what are some of the issues here that we're talking about? Are we talking about overutilization, cost, cancer risk, romance with technology, all of them? Well, I think uh, your introduction did a terrific job of saying that there are really two sides to every story, and I agree it's probably a little bit of all of uh, the suggestions. Uh, we're really enthralled with the idea that medical imaging helps, and it clearly does, but there does get to be a point where that we use too much of a good thing. Up into the mid-'70s, the major source of radiation for the average American was cosmic background and the radon in our homes. And now medical imaging has essentially doubled our national per capita dose. And that the two big factors that are driving this are the number of scans per person and the dose per scan. And you pointed out how CT can really be equated to hundreds of chest X-rays um, uh, for an abdominal CT scan. And 35 years ago, I mean, CT was brand new, and it really wasn't part of the equation. But now um, the latest numbers I have might even put us at 80 million CT scans last year. And that's like one for every three Americans uh, per year. And so if you didn't get a scan uh, last year or in the last three years, somebody else got your scan. 
So what do you think is driving this increased utilization? Um, there's the incredible benefit. Uh, it clearly is useful. I know I use it in my daily practice uh, to help diagnose and treat patients. I know Rich does, and most physicians um, uh, order CT scans uh, uh, because it's tremendously valuable information. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, we need to sort of step back and, and often ask ourselves, are there alternatives that we might use? Dr. Griffey, do you uh, agree? Are there are these the same issues we're talking about, overutilization, uh, cost? What's really driving us here? Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, you know, CT is just an invaluable tool that's really transformed medical practice. Um, and the big increases we're seeing utilization are driving the concerns about cost and radiation. Um, you know, in some places, are the it's been a changeover in imaging modality where once we would have obtained an X-ray, now we're obtaining a CT. But what we're seeing is that not only has CT replaced the old technology, but it has really surpassed it um, to a point that in some cases is hard to understand and, and get your hands around. Um, this has certainly captured the attention of payers and patients and physicians and is increasingly uh, in the lay press. Uh, so I can tell you, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. As an emergency physician, CT provides an instantaneous answer to a number of critical questions. Uh, and so, it, again, it's um, it's been a, a fantastic tool. And in almost all cases, the for an appropriate indication, the benefits of CT far outweigh the risks of CT. So there's, if one were to look and uh, check the web for latest articles coming out around the concerns around radiation exposure, it seems that over the past maybe year or two there's been this increasing interest in this. What, what has pushed that increasing interest? Have there been stories or is there information that leads us to understand that there are greater risks today? I think some of it goes back in the pediatric community. There's, uh, there was a wake-up call in about 2005, and it really sparked the image gently movement in pediatrics. And uh, as a consequence, there's really been a realignment of how imaging is being used in child care. And um, it, it clearly makes a difference because these scans add up over a person's lifetime, and children are much more sensitive to the same dose of radiation. Um, and so I think very appropriately, the Image Gently campaign, and there's a terrific website, imagegently.com, um, that describes how to improve oh, the, the benefits of medical imaging in children. And uh, then there were a series of articles, uh, two of them in the November Journal, the Archives of Internal Medicine, that outlined the problem uh, going a year ago um, in the New England Journal, and then I think June in JAMA. I mean, there's a series just of one after another high-profile articles really doing a very nice job of framing uh, the series of arguments about um, it's a tremendously beneficial technology uh, but again, we have to be aware of its downside. I'll add to that that um, apart from just the, the raw numbers uh, of utilization, 
you know, I'm an emergency physician. I'm not a radiologist or a radiation physicist. And the way I came to this was by looking at uh, observing that we had a, a small cohort of patients who would come back into the emergency department with similar complaints on different visits and would repeatedly be imaged. And when you look back through their history, not only were they repeatedly imaged in the emergency department, but they were repeatedly imaged throughout different venues in the hospital or outpatient setting. And we started looking at, well, you know, what's the effect of this? What is the cumulative radiation that these patients are getting um, and starting to look at the downstream effects of that. Um, and that largely had been underappreciated uh, until recently. So we're taking the opportunity of using WIHI to get the word out around. Is there resistance to understanding the issues here? Is there pushback? I think uh, there are always going to be a group of naysayers. I, I, I like to uh, think in analogies, and it's sort of like global warming. Uh, there are still some people that uh, will probably say that the, the rising levels of CO2 in our atmosphere have nothing to do with human activity. Um, there are some people that would say that all this radiation that we're using, uh, there's not a downside. Uh, but pretty clearly, if you stand back, and I think there's tremendously good data that talks about uh, the risks of low-level ionizing radiation from really the Hiroshima and Chernobyl um, and tremendous amount of just basic biology that shows ionizing radiation clearly can cause damage to the DNA of cells. Uh, but there still will be people that will say um, it's not something that we should um, focus on. I, I think that... Uh there clearly has been controversy here with respect to the idea that um, low levels of ionizing radiation, you know, is that truly related to, does that cause cancer? Um, but there was a large uh, recent, uh, what was called the Biological Effects of Ionizing Radiation 7 report uh, from the National Academy of Science that does present a consensus position that even low levels of ionizing radiation um, do are associated with cancer. And that's not just extrapolated data, but observed data from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, et cetera. So I wonder, is some of the problem um, the fact that you don't see the effect of the ionizing radiation until much later in life? So it's hard to figure out, is this my problem or is this someone else's problem? Right. The 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 decades between exposure and untoward effects, you know, those sorts of time lags make it very difficult to attribute cause. Um, and uh, the the clear uh, problem is is that cancer, unfortunately, is a, a fairly prevalent disease, and we're talking about small, small fractions of the overall cancer rate being attributed to ionizing radiation. And again, it's uh, a decade or two in the future that we might start to see something bump. Um, and uh, in the same time, there could be a number of other causes uh, that people would attribute it to. Great. Thank you. Uh, this is WIHI. You are listening to Dr. James Duncan and Dr. Richard Griffey. I'm Frank Federico sitting in for Madge Kaplan, and today we're discussing the dangers of overexposure to radiation from imaging practices. I, I'd like to move to some solutions now. Um, 
and I'm wondering if uh, either or both of you can contribute. We can focus on the technology and is there a better way to design the technology, and we can also focus on uh, utilization. Suggestions, one better than the other, or do we need to use both? Dr. Duncan? Um, clearly both. Uh, technology, there's the manufacturers really have been working on this pretty much incessantly. Uh, they keep improving their technology. Um, they really have done a lot to reduce the dose uh, for a CT scan, um, and they continue uh, to, to work on uh, low-level techniques, getting the same quality images with less dose. They at some point, they'll run up against the fundamental laws of physics. Um, and so it really is shared with appropriate utilization. Yeah, I would uh, agree with that, that <clears throat> there are a, a number of techniques that have dramatically decreased the dose for certain study types, um, making possible uh, certain studies that previously uh, yielded very large doses of radiation and, and now not necessarily so. Um, anything from decreasing the actual amount of uh, radiation coming from the x-ray tube uh, during a CT study and modulating the amount of radiation that is given during a study uh, to uh, different shielding techniques and then starting to get into more uh, behavioral uh, components like accepting increased noise in the image quality, so decreasing the amount of radiation, but trying to answer a relatively binary kind of question by accepting increased image noise so that you still get the answer, but you don't get the best quality picture. So are there alternatives? Should uh, clinicians be thinking of other types of imaging like ultrasound or MRIs? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, that, that's one area where if, for example, if you can answer the, the question that you're interested in with another modality, um, that's certainly one option. You know, whether that ends up being... Uh, the starting point or not is uh, is a question that needs to be answered. So um, what part can patients play? Can play, patients play a role in um, ensuring their own safety? Absolutely. Uh, again, with the image gently, a big part of it has been working with the parents so that they know their child's dose and uh, serve as an advocate uh, for their child about uh, is it uh, an imaging study done, oh, just to confirm what we already know, and therefore it might not be needed at, uh, if we're willing to accept um, uh, alternative treatment paths, um, and also not having an expectation that every oh, uh, illness requires an x-ray to confirm Again, what you have a reasonable expectation is already going on. Yeah, there have been uh, studies where looking at whether patients were informed about uh, the radiation associated with CTs and whether uh, the patient then wanted the CT or not. And the patients generally did want to have the imaging after they were informed of the risks, again, with the idea that for an appropriate indication, 
the risks are, are far outweighed by the benefits of imaging. Um, and that gets to what Jim was discussing with, you know, well, does every situation require some imaging? Um, so I think education is the is the first key, and the uh, the second would be having a some kind of primary care physician if you don't already, or trying to get access to that, so that uh, when you do have some illness and there is the possibility of a wait and see approach, uh, instead of having to find the answer to that question immediately requiring some imaging, there is this other outlet. So, uh, yeah. I'm sorry, let me jump in. I just want to ask for, again, the patient's role. You said parents can track and uh, monitor how the doses that they've had and how frequent, et cetera. Um, are there opportunities where patients maybe um, we hear stories of patients visiting physicians who have repeat tests because they either can't access the originals or um, they just don't like the results from the original? Uh, are there other things patients can do? Can they have copies of their CTs? Great questions. Um, more and more, we're seeing patients bring CD scans with um, their uh, prior studies and as they're going from doctor to doctor. Um, uh, in the future, we're probably going to see health information exchanges or methods of electronically moving these images around that uh, to try and minimize what you pointed out. It's pretty common that you'll get an x-ray in one doctor's office and then that study's repeated really for the same indication in another office uh, because the images weren't easily available or they couldn't be opened, you know, a whole host of problems. And that's a pretty easy thing to try and tackle um, because it's, it's uh, clear overuse. You know, we see this uh, frequently in the emergency department. Uh, as often as not, patients will bring a CD with them from another facility if they're transferred in, or they may not have that CD, and then some either repeat imaging is required, or increasingly we try to get images couriered over if we can do that. But uh, that is definitely a problem. Uh, one of the related problems is, well, if patients track the amount of radiation they've had uh, with cards that have been proposed, et cetera, it's hard right now to know exactly what to do with that information. So if you've had uh, X number of CTs, and even if you could translate that into the amount of radiation, cumulative radiation you've had, there's currently not a clear risk stratification model to say, well, in this case, we should image with a different modality or proceed with imaging or absolutely do not image. Um, and that work is needed to develop that model. So, Doc, uh, Dr. Duncan, you mentioned uh, pediatrics. Uh, are there examples that uh, you can elaborate a little bit more about systems that have been developed and can be put in place? Uh, I think one that actually Rich probably knows better than I is the, the head CT rules that um, I remember when my sons were growing up that they fall, they hit their heads, and it's always a question of, you know, when do we go to the emergency room? And if we arrive in the emergency room, I remember my expectation was uh, we were going to get a head CT. Um, and uh, they did a terrific job of just going through do 
doing the physical exam, you know, looking at the history and making a decision that no, uh, didn't meet the criteria that the injury was severe enough to warrant a head CT scan. So um, what happens if a patient were to come to you and insists on a CT scan and you're in a position, and this is uh, probably more for you, Dr. Duncan, Dr. Griffey, you're in a situation where sometimes it's the only way you can get a good picture. How do you manage patients who may be demanding them, and yet in your good clinical judgment you say, that's nah, not the best thing to do right now? You, you try and have the conversation. Um, you did, I, I would try and explain myself. This comes up, uh, oh, children with appendicitis. Uh, it used to be fairly common that we would do a follow-up CT scan to prove that uh, they had gotten better, that our uh, drainage treatment after draining uh, an abscess and treating their appendicitis, that they were really better. Uh, and now parents will ask, you know, whether we're going to get that follow-up CT scan. And a lot of times it's it's the conversation with them to say, you know, if they look, um, if all the clinical parameters indicate that they're getting better, uh, the CT scan really isn't going to add that much useful information unless there's, again, something wrong with the pattern. Yeah, there's a lot of variability out there. This is sort of analogous to the idea of uh, patients wanting antibiotics for various, you know, upper respiratory conditions that are more likely viral. Um, and you can have the conversation with the patient, but at some point um, that kind of contentious position to be in uh, is felt just not to be worth it. And there's... Uh, a lot of incentive not to miss a diagnosis, um, and there's very little incentive to avoid imaging. Um, and that's sort of the position that many clinicians are in. I see. We're in the midst of discussing approaches to reducing the risk of accumulated doses of radiation from imaging practices with Dr. James Duncan and Dr. Richard Griffey from Washington University School of Medicine. Jesse, would you remind participants about the chat room and how they can ask questions? Absolutely, Frank. So I've just opened the chat room for everybody, and you now have the option to chat to all participants. So if you could um, have a question for our guests or a comment to make about safe radiation imaging, uh, please put it in that chat room and hit send. Uh, a couple of you did sneak in comments to us uh, before we started, and uh, this one comes from Meyer Brezis. Uh, since we don't really know the correct balance of appropriate use versus overuse, is there any benchmarking or reasonable ratio of average CTs per patient? I know you guys mentioned the one, uh, one in three at the top of the program, um, but that was overuse. Um, what is there a golden ratio there? Um, you know, there's really very, one of the problems is there's very little information about this um, that is uh, publicly available for benchmarking. Um, you can look back through some of the CDC or uh, HRQ databases to try to figure that out, but currently there's not really good benchmarking available. I think it's going to be on oh, condition-specific that, um, again, like the head CT rules, that when presented with a clinical problem such as this or X, um, is there really a benefit or in aggregate, is there no benefit and perhaps even a risk uh, to going ahead with 
uh, imaging, clearly um, C, uh, screening CT exams uh, became a topic for lung cancer, and then they were actually being marketed directly to the public for a while. And it really comes down to the pretest probability versus the risk. Uh, the calculations that were being done with screening CTs of the chest showed that the, the dose uh, didn't achieve enough benefit. So as we think about trying to address this issue, who needs to be part of the solution? Is this a hospital problem, a physician problem, manufacturer, regulators, or even the professional associations? Uh, it's uh, very likely to be uh, at least a hospital problem, but also a physician problem. And there are already uh, regulators working at uh, different kind of imaging uh, metrics that will come out uh, regarding appropriate imaging or efficient imaging in various situations. Uh, so I think that the responsibility is going to be widespread, and it's, it's something that we all need to play a role in. Right. I mean, I think this is a very broad topic. It, it's really a microcosm of... Um, information gathering throughout medicine. Uh, imaging is clearly a pretty visible part, um, but we tend to gather a lot of information that um, isn't clearly linked to driving uh, decisions. Uh, I see it as sometimes, I, I have a curiosity as well. I want to see if somebody's getting better, but uh, it really goes back to uh, how do I link what I'm going to see back into how I treat a patient. We have a question from one of our participants who asks, what processes do you have in place or are planning to put into place to monitor radiation dosages in radiology, cardiology, radiation oncology? Do you have systems in place already, or do you have plans to do something? Start with you, Dr. Duncan. Um, we're rapidly oh, ramping up a, a series of different um, data capture efforts. Um, we've been monitoring uh, fluoroscopy use because uh, that's within my uh, small corner of the world um, and trying to, to track uh, use throughout basically all our procedures. We've expanded that to different hospitals uh, for now uh, CT and are capturing that information. Uh, we're hoping to start uh, a multi-hospital project to, to look at how it's used between different hospitals um, because clearly, um, again, I'm going to go back to image gently. Um, one of the big concerns is, is that children are often imaged with adult protocols. Um, and since children are smaller, they tend to get more dose than they actually need to get a, a high-quality image when imaged with adult protocols. Um, and one of my big concerns is that one hospital does a good job, but not um, if there's variation and you go to different hospitals, um, that's really a disparity in care. Uh, and we won't know that until we, we really put in all these data capture and measurement systems into place. One of the... Uh one of the articles that Jim referred to uh, demonstrated that among four San Francisco area hospitals, uh, patients going in for the same test could receive very different uh, radiation exposures, uh, something on the order of 13-fold amount of variability, and then 
subtract the lifetime attributable risk of cancer for a 20-year-old female, I believe, uh, whether she received that test at the one hospital where the dose was very low versus very high. Um, and so making sure that from hospital to hospital and within our hospitals, from you know, scanner to scanner and test to test, that we try to standardize the radiation that one gets from a particular test, and that's not always easy to do, but for identical scan types, trying to do that is a first step that's needed. We plan to start looking at things like you know, some of the uh, ways to estimate radiation dose, like dose length product and CT dose index, to try to get at that. It's, it's not perfect, but it may be some of the best metrics that we have. Um, the other thing is to look at variability in practice among physicians. And, you know, like I mentioned, there are very few standards and benchmarks out there, uh, but starting to look at, well, is there a huge difference between Dr. A and Dr. X? Um, and if so, why? And how can we get at this? And how can we standardize safely where that's appropriate? One. And I think, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. Uh, uh, you know, clearly that. Yeah, I mean, your audience knows quite well um, how measurement is is linked to improvement. Uh, trying to find uh, variation and um, and also the, a just culture. That I'm not criticizing. Um, institutions that do it one particular way, it's a big part of uh, can we do better and how do we find different ways to do better. And uh, for radiology, a big part is reducing the dose, but you know, maintaining the quality of the image uh, such that it's still diagnostic, but how can we get closer and closer to uh, the lowest possible dose, but yet maintain the clinical benefit? Dr. Duncan, I think you referred earlier to a smart card, something from the International Atomic Energy Agency. Would you like to elaborate yeah. on that? Um, this is something that uh, they've been talking about uh, at a, a couple meetings, and it's a uh, pretty good idea that um, people would have a card that really is their identifier, uh, and the information is sent to a central server, and as you wand your card, um, it would be much like, oh, a debit card or anything else that tells you how much is in your central account. Um, and so the, it, the idea of being able to aggregate dose information across multiple institutions. Unfortunately, there are lots of privacy concerns, um, security concerns about, you know, who else might try and use that information. Um, but um, it more and more, I think people are beginning to see the, the benefits of tracking their accumulated radiation dose across multiple venues and over time. Dr. Griffey, one of our participants asks that there are a number of exposures that happen in the ED. We're now looking for the low-hanging fruit to decrease CT imaging in our emergency department. Any thoughts or suggestions? Sure. Um, I I would say that the you know the, the most common CT performed in the emergency department, uh, the most common ones are going to be uh, head CT, abdominal pelvic CT, um, and then chest, 
uh, and and then other. Um, the one of the low hanging fruit uh, would be ureteral CT. So uh, patients come in with concerns for kidney stones, and they get a CT, uh, and it demonstrates they've got a kidney stone. Once that diagnosis is made and you've excluded other concerning etiologies like uh, a abdominal aortic aneurysm, for example, uh, and you've demonstrated that the patient has this stone-forming disease, then when they come in for repeat visits with this same kind of renal colic, you'd you don't need another CT to demonstrate that. Um, you know, you could look with an ultrasound to, to see whether they've got evidence of obstruction or treat them empirically. Uh, that would be one area of very low-hanging fruit in my mind. Um, other areas would be to apply existing validated clinical decision rules for things like uh, head trauma or headache or pulmonary embolus. Um, the more serious the condition, the less of a low-hanging fruit it is because the downsides of not imaging are, are high. Uh, so those are clearly areas where we should start, um, and, and I think that there is some movement in that direction. So, Dr. Griffey, does the American College of Radiology, or are there other sources where hospitals can get information, uh, similar guidelines, similar what you're suggesting? Yes. Um, you know, the American College of Radiology has uh, a ranking of uh, the what they call the appropriateness of different studies, uh, studied modalities, you know, x-ray or fluoroscopy or MRI, et cetera, for different conditions. Um, and that's one area to look at. Uh, you know, I, I, those are not clinical decision rules. And, and one of the problems here is that the increases in cancer risk that we're talking about uh, are probably best viewed on a population basis. So, you know, we're doing 65 or 80 million CT scans, and as a population, that's going to cause X number of cancers. Um, but when you get to the point of, you know, you're examining one doctor and one patient, and you're trying to determine the risk and benefit for that particular patient, then the rules change a bit. And uh, you really need to look at, well, what's the risk and benefit in this particular patient for this particular visit? Um, and so it's helpful to have something that, like a clinical decision rule that's a validated tool in making those specific decisions. Um, that's not what's really offered in the appropriateness criteria. They're a helpful guide um, generally to determine what imaging study you want to get. Uh, but they're not the same as a clinical decision rule. I see. So we've got a couple of questions around shielding because we know we want to direct the radiation where it can uh, give us the information that we want. Are there suggestions around shielding such as uh, breast shields, are they okay, uh, bismuth shielding? What's your experience and what the guidelines do you follow? I, You know, we don't currently use breast shields for CT. Um, there is some concern for, as I understand it, some internal reflection of uh, radiation, but it is something that is promoted. Um, 
I would have to defer to a radiation physicist. It's it's a complex issue, it's sort of beyond my scope of expertise. One thing that we haven't talked about at all is what about employee safety? Are there any concerns there that uh, we should be considering? Uh, at least in the emergency department, uh, this is fairly established that uh, the amount of radiation you get from, for example, a, a CT technologist or a radiation technologist who performs the studies themselves, that the amount of radiation that uh, is once exposed to with an x-ray, for example, is uh, essentially dissipated in the air if you're beyond six feet from the patient. Um, in addition, the CT technologists are behind a shielded wall. Um, all of these uh, employees wear badges to track their uh, cumulative radiation. When we started, there been any reports, or there are any um, systems in place to track employees over time to see whether or not they might have been impacted later in life. Similarly, as we talked about patients being exposed and cancer risk or cancer showing up much later in life. Uh, there have been concerns with uh, uh, oh, the interventional fluoroscopic procedures where the the complex cardiac casts and some of the procedures that we do. Uh, that uh, unfortunately it's just too small a group to look at and uh, study as a population, but uh, some of the efforts have shown um, increases over expectation for certain types of cancer, such as I believe lymphoma. We have a participant who, um, from the Naval Jackson Hospital in Jacksonville, said at our institution, we are working to educate our fellow clinicians regarding the relative radiation of CT scans. They report to CTDI or the DLP. What are your thoughts regarding this practice? Are you familiar with those groups? Um, so the uh, CTDI is the CT dose index, uh, which is a measure of an, an estimate of the amount of radiation you get with a, if, if you were doing a, a CT and you have one slice of the CT, how much radiation uh, that represents and the, uh, and the scatter around it. The DLP is the dose length product and that is taking that CTDI and multiplying it by the, the length of the scan through the patient. Um, these are rough estimates of uh, effective dose, uh, but they, uh, they're only that. Uh, they are a start. They're probably the best we have. They are available from the newer generation CT scanners, but are frequently not captured in the radiology information system archive. Um, my guess is that uh, one of the efforts around uh, getting a rain in on, on radiation and cumulative radiation doses to try to start measuring. And, you know, we use the measurements that we can get, and these are, are some of the measurements we can get. I mean, they're, they're estimates again. They're not actually determined from the individual patient, per se. 
we have a question who has um, a part from a participant. What is the thought regarding higher noise images versus applying software to smoothing out the images? Is there a problem with liability of missing a diagnosis with either of these methods? And should high noise be allowed? Dr. Dungan? Um, that's a, a really interesting question because in um, fluoroscopy, uh, we're really working more and more to decrease the dose per image and accepting a huge amount of noise with the idea that if there's still enough for me to make a good clinical decision, that's all I need. I can still work through a very noisy image. Um, in diagnostic imaging, I think it's um, oh, a slightly different problem, but uh, in fluoroscopy, there's been a tremendous push towards uh, decreasing the dose per image uh, and using other ways uh, to, again, just enough information to make a valid clinical decision and then move on. Um, the CT scans, again, we can irradiate people uh, with uh, very high doses and collect very detailed images, but there's some really fundamental physics and signal information theory that says at a certain point, gathering more information doesn't help you. And I don't. I, I hope that's clear. Uh, it's the difference between, you know, the uh, half a megapixel camera, and now everybody wants to have a 20 megapixel camera. Um, if it's enough to 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 do the job, it's enough to do the job. I'm glad uh, that someone brought up the issue of liability because that's sort of the gorilla in the room. Um, you know, asking a physician to use a clinical decision rule or some other method uh, to avoid imaging um, does bring up this issue of risk. And uh, without some kind of tort reform malpractice protection on the other side of that, uh, the buy-in is going to be more difficult. Um, the liability questions are still unknown. You know, are there going to be lawsuits down the road for over-imaging and cancer? It, it's hard to know. Um, are there going to be lawsuits for following some protocol that results in not imaging uh, and missing a diagnosis? Um, so this is an area that, that clearly, you know, is a barrier that has to be addressed. Um, so I'm glad someone brought that up. So um, there's a, a need for the various uh, specialties to communicate. Just thinking through and, and going through this liability question just uh, raised it, my own experience in medical malpractice before joining IHI where uh, primary care providers and radiologists were both being named in medical malpractice lawsuits because of a missed lump or a missed uh, cancer diagnosis. Any suggestions on how to improve that communication link between the, the specialties, between the doctors, the emergency room doctors, and the radiologists and others who may be completing these tests? Um, I'm not sure if I fully understand your question. I, certainly with respect to agreement on, you know, from the emergency department, for example, many of the questions that we need answered with CT 
are, if not, you know, binary, like does this patient have a pulmonary embolus or not, then there are fairly limited questions that we need answered. Um, and so uh, things like accepting increased noise to achieve answering that question while minimizing radiation um, compete against the idea of, well, do you miss some other incidental finding that would have been picked up had you used the you know the higher quality imaging with the higher radiation um, so agreement between specialties on how we're going to uh, approach those problems and and whether you know agreement between emergency medicine and radiology i'm sorry urology for example on imaging the patient with who comes in with renal colic who has demonstrated st stone forming disease um, is clearly essential in establishing protocols. Um, as far as the liability concerns go, though, uh, that's a whole other issue that, that is going to need even broader, you know, it's a, it's a cultural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Dr. Duncan, anything from you? Um, it's actually been brought up as a reason not to collect information about what doses we use uh, uh, when treating or diagnosing patients, that we, uh, if we start collecting this information, what are we going to do um, with the very high doses uh, that we might observe? Uh, that the, the concern is, is that people don't even want to look um, because that will generate uh, oh, a, a liability. Uh, and especially when you start talking about aggregating information across hospitals in uh, throughout a region or throughout somebody's lifespan, somebody would look back and say, um, you know, hospital X and hospital Y were clearly different. It seemed to be the same test and, and asking the question why. Um, and as we start collecting very detailed information, we, um, I think it clearly needs to be done, but there needs to be some sort of oh, safe repository, much like aviation uses, to report um, its uh, less than perfect uh, performance on oh, uh, servicing an aircraft, uh, but those are the only ways we learn how to do it better. Um, and uh, we're hoping to see that maybe patient safety organizations would be a, a, a good working organization to help us collect this data and maybe a very neutral place to start analyzing it. That's a very good idea, taking advantage of existing structures that can collect that information because in the aggregate there's always much more power than the individual information that you present. Um, in recapping today's um, conversation, and I thank you both for contributing your time and uh, for sharing with us. I guess we looked at the first step that hospitals should take is really consider uh, the use of CAT scans in particular about are they the correct procedure that we should have. Um, the second is uh, identifying uh, whether or not there might be an alternative, uh, different kind, and whether or not the CAT scan is actually even necessary. We talked a little bit about dose. We talked a little bit about patient education. We talked a little bit about the role of both uh, technology, hospitals, and uh, even some regulatory issues. Anything that we might have missed? Anything else? Any other player in this game that um, we haven't touched on? 
one one or two things come to mind uh, for me, and that is uh, if we are going to try to uh, promote for example, the use of an alternate imaging modality such as ultrasound or MRI, or admitting a patient and performing serial examinations, then we need to make it easy for uh, clinicians to use those options. So there needs to be availability of those alternate imaging strategies or uh, or. Uh, approaches to you know trying to get at answering the questions we need to answer. Um, one of the other pieces there is around information technology. Uh, if a physician can easily see that a patient has had numerous CT studies uh, at the point of ordering the next one, then uh, it may better inform their decision-making than if they're doing that in the absence of that information. Um, you know, increasingly as uh, electronic medical records and computerized physician order entry is penetrated in, in uh, hospitals and outpatient settings, um, that kind of decision support is needed, and that might even include things like uh, embedded clinical decision rules or prompts and reminders, even some soft forcing functions with peer-to-peer -peer consultation with the radiologist, et cetera, um, those will be important features in, uh, in trying to get a handle on utilization and radiation. So as we design and implement our uh, communication systems, our electronic health records, et cetera, that's a key component that you're suggesting we should have. Thank you for that suggestion. Um, one of our uh, participants asked, um, this could be a high money maker. P uh, hospitals could be making money with the technology. Is this a perverse incentive? Is there a disincentive to not use CT as much? Dr. Duncan? I guess uh, I can look at it and say, I know our children's hospital has seen a 50% reduction in pediatric CT use in the last five years. Um, and uh, there are some that would say um, it's the end of the world uh, from radiology's point of view because uh, we're no longer doing these CT scans. Uh, but what uh, clearly uh, seen is that uh, people say it's the right thing to do for the children that they take care of. I, um, you know, once deprived of the risk, I think healthcare professionals were in it uh, to take care of patients. Uh, the business side is is fairly secondary, and it's making a convincing argument about how to provide the best care. Dr. Griffey, any closing comments from you? Um, well, I uh, I think that. This is a, a great forum, and I think this very important issue for uh, clinicians and administrators to be aware of. Um, I'm sure we're going to see uh, propagation of a number of quality measures in this area, and so it, it behooves everyone to be aware of it and to incorporate it into their quality improvement and patient safety uh, programs. Great. Well, thank you. I want to thank you both, Dr. Duncan and Dr. Griffey, for 
participating in our program today and sharing with us uh, both your knowledge and your concerns and giving us some ideas and suggestions about how to move forward here. I also want to thank all those who joined in the conversation today. There were some great questions and great comments, and uh, that's what makes it more powerful is that all of us together are learning. For more information, please check out the WIHI site on IHI.org, where you'll find an audio download of this program, which will be posted by tomorrow. You can also find it on iTunes. Search under Podcasts in the IHI uh, and under IHI. You will uh, also be able to download previous programs that are available both on the IHI website and in iTunes. In the same location as each show archives, including today's, there are very helpful resources that are put together by our own Vicki Minden, and they're available to you, and we'll have answers uh, to questions and, re and um, any resources that we may have mentioned that uh, we may not have provided references for. Uh, this is a reminder that you can also download the chat when you log off today. Any of the slides we used, um, you can also look for the option, to, and we appreciate you filling out a brief survey that will pop up at the end. Uh, we appreciate your comments because it always uh, helps us to make our programming better and better. We want to know what worked for you today and how we can make IHI, WIHI a much better program. If you have any questions that you'd like to forward to us or to any of our guests, you can always forward them to info, I-N-F-O, at I-H-I dot org. And feel free to suggest future topics uh, because that's how we look for our programming, things that are of interest to you and others. On our next WIHI, scheduled on July 1 from 2 to 3 Eastern, we're going to delve into disruptive behavior. The title is Unprofessional Behavior Not Permitted Here. We will have a panel discussing approaches to dealing with unprofessional conduct. Information about the program, the speakers, and how to enroll, plus some resources that you can download and review ahead of that program, again, are available on the IHI website under the WIHI tab, and you can go there just by clicking on the logo and following it through. I want to thank the people who helped make WIHI possible, including Jonathan Small, Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Brittany McPhee, Jane Rosner, Matt Morse, and Vicki Menden, and of course Madge Kaplan, who really is the source and the energy behind all of this programming. The musical selections that you hear just before WIHI begins are performed and arranged by Patricio and Jennifer Batalis. The music that opens and closes WIHI are original arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sa Passao on piano. Again, a big thank you to our guests, to all of you who joined today. Check out the WIHI website to keep up with the latest developments with the program, including the schedule. It is my privilege to fill in today on a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care for all of us. From the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Frank Federico, and good day.